Okay, today we're going to think about a choice. Cheap things don't last. Costly things are difficult to get. So which one is better? Cheap or costly? Did anybody see uh, the effects of the earthquake in Turkey? Did you see those videos where a building is standing and then suddenly collapses in a cloud of dust? Did you see those? And hundreds of buildings, if not thousands, have collapsed in that earthquake. And the thing is, they were supposed to be built earthquake-proof. There are building specifications that if you follow them, then your building is going to go through an earthquake and not flatten like a pancake. But what we found is that you can pay a fee to the government and get those requirements waived. Now, what people thought, evidently, was, you know, earthquakes. Like, they don't happen every day, right? So, do we really need to go through all the difficulty and the cost of paying the fee and using all the materials? And I mean, really. Can't we just pay the fee and just get this through easier, faster, quicker? And look at it, it's a great building, it's pretty, it's shiny. Can't we do that? But the problem was by bypassing the difficulty and going for the easy way, all these buildings are flattened. And now they're even talking about investigating the contractors for fraud. And it goes right back to the government that says, okay, uh, if you, if you want to pay us, we'll make it easy. And everybody says, oh, I like the easy way. Let's save money and let's make a bunch of money and build a bunch of buildings and fabulous. Now, did you hear about the one city in Turkey where the, the mayor refused to take that fee? So you couldn't pay this guy money to waive the specifications. And he, he insisted that all the buildings be built according to specification. And I'm sure they must have thought, what an irritating guy that he doesn't want to just do business. But then you know, in that one city, not one building has fallen down. All right. Yes, you could look at it as a difficulty, unnecessary complication, but then everybody who paid money for those buildings is going, gee, I guess that was okay. So, cutting corners, cheating for quick gain, results in advantages, but they don't last. Now, I mention this because living to please God 
is difficult. And you could see that as a disadvantage. You know, when you, when you do things God's ways, it turns out to be costly. And it looks like you're making your life unnecessarily difficult. And you could just have a nice, smooth life if you just didn't have to go through the difficulties. It actually looks like it's keeping you from getting what you want. And it does make life harder. But the results last forever. So then you have to ask the question, temporary gain or eternal gain? Which do you want? Now, you know, I'm getting a resonance. That door needs to be shut. If somebody can close it for me, I'll appreciate that. So I'm reading here in 2 Samuel 16. When David was a little past the top of the mountain, there was Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, who met him with a couple of saddle donkeys, and on them 200 loaves of bread, 100 clusters of raisins, 100 summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, what do you mean to do with these? So Ziba said, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who are faint in the wilderness to drink. Then the king said, And where is your master's son? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he's staying in Jerusalem, for he said, Today the house of Israel will restore the kingdom of my father to me. So the king said to Ziba, Here, all that belongs to Mephibosheth is yours. And Ziba said, I humbly bow before you, that I may find favor in your sight, my lord, O king. So here is Ziba, working hard to impress the king. David is at the summit of the Mount of Olives. That is the hill past Jerusalem. You come out of the east gate, and you go up the hill, and he's been walking up barefoot and weeping. He's just met his friend Hushai the Archite and said, you know what? I want you to go in there, back to the city, and see if you can't thwart the counsel of Ahithophel for me. David's on the run because Absalom, his son, is coming to take over the kingdom and kill him. That's where we're at today. And David is going away from Jerusalem. He meets Ziba coming towards him with a couple of donkeys, a bunch of supplies. Now, do you remember who Ziba is? This is, this is an interesting one. Ziba was the steward for King Saul. He's the one who's to manage all of Saul's property for him. So he doesn't have to think hard. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? So that's a steward's job. Take care of my stuff. Now, when King Saul died, Ziba kept taking care of everything. Only he was taking care of everything for himself. As if he were Saul. 
and he got to live as though he owned those estates. Until David remembered his covenant of the Lord with Saul's son, Jonathan. And he asked Duran and saying, is there anyone remaining of the descendants of Jonathan that I could bless? And they said, well, there's one, that's Mephibosheth. And so David says, well, go get him. And see, if you're a king, you're always supposed to wipe out the previous dynasty and all the relations so that there's no one to challenge your throne. Nice and legal. But David didn't do that. Instead of killing Mephibosheth, he says, all of the property of your grandfather Saul now belongs to you. And he says to Ziba, you and your 15 sons and your 20 servants work for him now. And Ziba said, okay. Now he doesn't get to take care of Saul's estates as though he were Saul. Now he's working for Mephibosheth. But now it's an interesting thing how circumstances change and, well, opportunities develop that make it easier to get what you want if you take advantage of them. And this is one of those situations. Everything's in flux. And Ziba says, hmm, I want to really serve the king. Something could come of it. So quick, he grabs a bunch of stuff, loads it on donkeys, and oh, he meets up with David. David says, what's this? And Ziba gets to say, you know, I wanted to help out. I'm loyal. I'm obedient. He didn't say that, but he's trying to project it and smile. I just wanted to help. I'm one of your loyal guys. And David naturally says, well, where, where's Mephibosheth? Why isn't he here? And Ziba Ziba throws Mephibosheth right under the bus and says, Mephibosheth actually thinks they're going to give the kingdom back to him. And David's reaction is shock and anger. Shock. You mean, I didn't kill him. I had him come to eat at my table like one of my sons, and the first time he gets an opportunity, he stabs me in the back. <sighs> you know, it's a shock. And it is difficult, isn't it, to show kindness to somebody and then find out, oh, they take all that kindness for granted. They're using you. So in anger... David makes a hasty decision. Okay, everything I gave to Mephibosheth, it's yours now. He strips Mephibosheth bare and rewards Ziba. He rewards Ziba. Why did Ziba do that? For reward. What did he get? Jackpot. Did Ziba think all I have to do is saddle up a couple of donkeys and I get 
everything. No, but it worked out beyond his dreams. Jackpot. Now, Mephibosheth bows down and says, oh, your obedient servant. But inside, he's doing one of these extreme victory dances. He goes, it's all mine. It's all mine. 15 sons, 20 servants. We're going to whoop it up tonight, folks. So you never know what's going to happen. If you take an opportunity, make yourself look good, make the competition stink. And you know, Mephibosheth isn't there to defend himself. David doesn't know if Ziba's telling the truth, but he's already being betrayed right now, so another betrayal sounds believable. And so Ziba doesn't have to work for anybody anymore. Ziba gets to work for himself. But you know what? Ziba was already working for himself, just looking for an opportunity to make it better. So, to get there, Ziba abandoned his master, stole some supplies, and made him look bad before the king. Just cut a couple of corners, and guess what? Gain advantage. Right? Hey, it worked out fabulous. Now, let's look at another example here in verse 5. Now, when King David came to Bahirim, there was a man from the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Girah, coming from there. He came out cursing continually as he came. And he threw stones at David and at and at all the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. Also Shimei said thus when he cursed, Come out, come out, you bloodthirsty man, you rogue. The Lord has brought upon you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you've reigned. And the Lord has delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom, your son. So now you are caught in your own evil because you are a bloodthirsty man. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Please let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? So let him curse, because the Lord has said to him, Curse David. Who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and all his servants, See how my son who came from my own body seeks my life? How much more now may this Benjamite? Let him alone and let him curse, for so the Lord has ordered him. It may be that the Lord will look on my affliction and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing this day. And as David and his men went along the road, Shimei went along the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went, threw stones at him, 
and kicked up dust. Now the, the king and all the people who were with him were, became weary, so they refreshed themselves there. So David reaches this territory called Bahirim, and it's in the tribe of Benjamin, the land that belongs to Benjamin, and that was the tribe of King Saul. And Shimei is related to King Saul. It says there in uh, verse 5, a man from the family of the house of Saul. Now, you could, you could imagine that Shimei, being in the family of Saul, probably enjoyed the relationship. There are perks that come when you're related to royalty. Life is good. And probably when Saul died, the perks ended. And Shimei evidently blames everything on David. Now, Shimei is outrageous here to accuse David of murder? Murdering the house of Saul? Really? Because we've read, David never touched Saul. He ran away. Twice he had an opportunity to kill him. Twice he said, spare his life. So he's trying to prove, I am no danger. And in fact, the Philistines killed Saul. And really, he fell on his own sword. So David never touched Saul or his family or anybody. It's outrageous for Shimei to accuse David of bloodshed. And you know, David didn't take over the kingdom. The tribe of Judah came to David and said, you want to be king? And David said, okay. So he became king over Judah for seven years before Israel came to him and said, you want to be our king? And he says, okay. So now he's king over Israel. Did David lift a finger to take anything? And their answer is no. God made him king. And when he became king, he didn't purge Saul's family and friends. He found Mephibosheth and actually made him eat at his own table. So the things that Shimei are accusing him of are absolutely outrageous. And in fact, if David was really like Shimei was saying, Shimei wouldn't be alive. David would have killed him right out. So I'm sure that Shimei on a normal day would find it difficult to say to David what he really thought of him. That would get you killed, right? But on this day, the circumstances have come together in such a way that it's really easy to tell David what you think about him. Because now David's on the run and he's vulnerable. And it's really easy to take advantage of this opportunity to hit a guy when he's down, and especially when he's not retaliating. When he actually announces to his people, let him curse. It's open season on David. Throw rocks at him. 
throw dirt on him. But you notice he's doing it from an opposite hillside. It's kind of a, a valley and two ridges. And Shimei is on this one, and David's on this one. So if anybody goes to kill him, he has to kind of come down the valley and come up the hill again. And Shimei is a chicken. He can run away. So he's not actually getting up in David's face and just giving him. He's doing it from a safe distance. He's a pretty feisty chicken. Now, David, look how difficult David's situation is. He knows he's innocent. He knows he hasn't done anything like what Shimei says. And here's Shimei just screaming at the top of his lungs. What kind of a terrible person David is. How would you feel in that kind of situation? Would you feel, tra-la-la, what a beautiful day to be a refugee from my city and to be an outcast, exile king. And look, he's yelling at me, tra-la-la. And you know, there's Abishai right there to say, you know, I can kill him. Abishai is just like me. I say, man, if you can kill him, kill him. I can just walk over and then go bink like this and he's dead. Wouldn't that be fun, David? Huh? Huh? And David says, no, let him curse. Now, you think that's easy? Do you like to be yelled at? Do you like to be slandered? Wouldn't you want to just pull out your Glock and go... Wouldn't that feel great? Revenge is mine, says Rob. But David is doing something super, super difficult. He is entrusting himself to God and saying, God, if you want to let this guy curse me, that's on you. But who am I to decide this is not God's will for my life? Because it's happening. So if this isn't God's will, I'm going to let God decide Shimei is out of line. But that thumb has to come from God and not me. And there's Abishai saying, you know, we can cut corners here. I can make fast cutting work of this. And David says, nah. And he tells all of his guys so that Shimei can hear, don't kill him. Let him curse. So that is difficult. That is costly. All of Bahirim can see this spectacle of David fleeing into exile and this worthless Benjamite just throwing dirt on him. Now, being meek and humble is worth something to God because it's costly and difficult. Does everybody get that? 
It's not easy. But the importance of it is that God gives grace to the humble. Now, Hushai remains loyal to King David in Absalom's presence. Look what it says in verse 15. Meanwhile, Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel was with him. And so it was when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, that Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king, long live the king. So Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why didn't you go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, No, but whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel choose, his I will be, and with him I will remain. Furthermore, whom should I serve? Should I not serve in the presence of his son? As I have served in your father's presence, so will I be in your presence. So here's Hushai. And David told him, go back into the city and thwart Ahithophel's counsel. Ahithophel is the most dangerous guy in this rebellion because he's wise and he knows exactly what to do. But see, Hushai says, okay, I'll do it for you. So Hushai is now, because of loving kindness and truth, risking his life. Is this easy or difficult? Because if he's caught, he's going to get killed. This is way difficult. But he's doing it. So... This finds grace with God to essentially lay down your life for your friend. So he meets up with Absalom saying, long live the king. And Absalom is naturally suspicious. Really? This is your loyalty to your friend? And that word loyalty is the Hebrew word chesed, which we would translate as loving kindness. And if you're friends with somebody, you are loyal to them because you love them. You don't quit being their friend when it gets difficult. If you quit being friend to somebody when it's difficult, you're not much of a friend at all. You're a remora, a sucker fish. Remora are the fish that sucker themselves to sharks and ride along with sharks. Evidently, it's safe. But that's all you are. You're hanging on for when it's good. So even Absalom, the immensely self-centered Absalom, knows what a friend is supposed to be. Gee, you're supposed to stick to your friends. What are you doing? So Hushai tells Absalom the truth. And this is one of these great, interesting moments in Scripture. Because 
He says, long live the king. He didn't mention which king, right? Absalom assumes him, but is that a, a fair assumption? No, it's not. And then he says, I belong to the guy whom the Lord has chosen, this people, and all Israel has chosen. Well, did the Lord choose Absalom? No, he didn't. Who did he choose? David. Who did all Israel choose? Absalom or David? Israel didn't choose Absalom because he made up this deception. He's been deceiving Israel for four years now. So the Lord chose David. And all the people came to David and chose him. So basically, Hushai is telling Absalom, I'm still working for David. <laughs> and it's not a lie. And the amazing thing is that both Absalom and Ahithophel accept that. And they say, oh, well, that makes sense. Okay, you're on board now. Just like that. Now, why do they believe him? And this is the interesting thing about these guys, Ziba, Shimei, Absalom, Ahithophel. They're all serving themselves. Now, that principle never changes on the inside, ever, though outside it m might look different. Like it might look good for me to serve Mephibosheth, because that's what I have to do, but inside I'm still serving myself. Now, if I get a chance to be my own boss, only now I get to do it openly. Now, that's depending on the circumstances. And what these guys figure is that, okay, Hushai is evidently one of us, after all. Not necessarily serving David, he's serving himself. He's David's friend for what he can get out of it. Now, if the opportunity changes, if things become difficult to get you what you want with David, but it becomes more diplomatic to get it from Absalom, it only makes sense to just kind of dump David and go with Absalom. That makes sense, because when you're serving yourself, you choose according to what benefits you, not how difficult it is. If it gets difficult, you say, that's a lot of work. Look, the opportunity is here. Let's go this way. So they say, oh, you're one of those. Okay, well, that's like us. At least we know where we stand. They don't suspect them. So they say, okay, let's move on. So this is the last one here in verse 20. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, give advice as to what we should do. And Ahithophel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you are abhorred by your father then the hands of all who are with you will be strong. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on top of the house, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. 
Now, the advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one had inquired at the oracle of God. So was all the advice of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. So what Ahithophel counsels here is a radical break with David. And he says, go sleep with your father's concubines. Because you're sending the signal that the kingdom is mine, your wives are mine, and this is completely offensive and outrageous. When you cross this line, there can be no reconciliation with David because the offense is too great. And all of Absalom's supporters will know that this is to the end. You can't change your mind and say, oops, because you've gone too far. This means you have to go full out. And you need to go full out when you're doing one of these rebellions. Don't ever say, I told you this, okay? But if you're going to do a rebellion, you had better be serious. Because if you goof up halfway through and decide you don't really want to do this after all, they'll kill you. It's you or them. And that's what Ahithophel is telling Absalom. You draw the line. Everybody knows this is it. We take over or else. There is no else. We're going to do this. Now, Absalom thinks, wow, what great advice. This is good. I get to be radical, and I get to sleep with ten women. What, a, what an amazing opportunity. It's easy and convenient. Now, it's part of God's discipline of David. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, the Lord says, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. So God says, this is going to happen to you. But at the same time, Absalom doing this is breaking God's commandments. You know, an important commandment is honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. And if you don't honor your father and your mother, you're not going to live a long life. My mother used to tell me this. She goes, kid, you're bucking for a short life. Do you understand that? That would impress me. <laughs> Absalom is going to live a short life. Do you realize that? You cannot break the commandments of God without consequences. This also breaks Leviticus 18, verse 8. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. 
Now, this is unfaithfulness to God. It is unfaithfulness to man. But it is easy. And the circumstances have come together to say this is the next step. So, it's easy and it gets Absalom what he wants, but it isn't right. So look at this. This is what we have to consider. Is if you go the right way in life and do what God says, it's going to be difficult and costly. It's never going to look like an advantage. Why should I forgive that person? That person hurt me. So why should I forgive that person? And the answer is, Jesus said, if you don't forgive, then your Father in heaven will not forgive you. That's why. If you expect God to take away your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness, then he requires you to forgive people for his sake. It's really for your sake. Because when you don't forgive, you are doomed to replay that hurt over and over again. And all you do is do yourself damage. So, in order to honor God, you forgive people. It is costly. God's going to take care of them. But you really have to forgive. And every time it comes up again, you say, nope, I forgive. Nope, I forgive. Absolutely not. I forgive. Until it doesn't come up anymore. And even if it does, you get, nope. It's been a long time, but I forgive. And after a while, you forget. You know something happened, but you don't relive it every day. All right. You know, just being a Christian can seem like a lot of extra work. You, you read your Bible. Man, that's a lot of work. And you pray. Oh my gosh, go to church. You really go to church? I mean, when you could have your whole Sunday morning free, you want to go to church and sit on a plastic chair and listen to what's-his-face go blah, blah, blah. You really want to do that? You could be free. Okay, if you want to go play church there and sit there. Some people opt out of Christian living because it is difficult. And it makes life harder, and there doesn't seem to be any advantage to it. But if we were thinking about this life alone... Being a Christian would be a stupid thing. Even the Apostle Paul says, if we in this life alone have trusted in Christ, 
we would be of all men most to be pitied. Little to no advantage to follow Jesus in this life. We're upfront about it. But the reality is, we're building our lives and we're looking towards that judgment to come. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Now, You can be a Christian, and you don't have to live a difficult life. The interesting thing is we're not forced to live a difficult life. We choose to. It's a choice. And no one has a gun to your head saying, you know, if you don't pray, you're dead. You can avoid being with Christians, and nothing bad is going to happen to you. So, you know, there's no punishment. And in fact, it's easy to get temporary gain. Just throw out the rules. And it doesn't cost anything. It's cheap. It's easy. But that's like building buildings in the country of Turkey. Thinking, ah, earthquakes. It's not going to happen. And then it happens. And everything is flattened. And it's too late. So, you know, persevering, doing what's right, seeking the Lord, Forgiving, witnessing, praying, reading, living life with facing towards the Lord Jesus. Costly. No easy advantage. But you look to the future. And what's in our future is a tremendous fire. And all of our lives are going to be tested by fire. Everything cheap and easy is going to burn. Everything that's costly and difficult is going to remain. So, you know, throwing out the rules, cutting corners, is no advantage.
You don't win anything by not doing the difficult things of following Jesus. Isn't that hard? There's every advantage in following Jesus with everything you've got to be completely into it. Because you see, there's a fire coming. And you know, if you find it hard to trust in Jesus, if you find it hard to obey him and costly, you're on the right track. It's supposed to be. I don't think there's ever a time when it's really super easy to follow Jesus. He said you have to pick up your cross if you want to follow me. So, can you take encouragement from that? That, hey, my life is difficult. This is hard. I must be on the right track. I must be living in the right way. There is no advantage to throwing out the rules. But when you go God's way, there is an eternal advantage. Let's pray. I confess that I get tired of doing what's right. I get weary. And that's because I'm not seeing the whole picture. And I get short-sighted. And that's why this is speaking to me. But I thank you, Heavenly Father, that your word gives us a long perspective so that we can see things as they really are. The difficulty in following Jesus is brief, light, momentary. And all these difficulties are working for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Help us to keep perspective. Help us to not worry about living a costly, difficult life. We can't do that without you. So we pray this morning as we are about to receive communion. Refresh and renew our hearts, please. And wash us. Cleanse us of wanting the easy way. Because it doesn't, it doesn't really fit with following you. Help us to live difficult, costly, and beautiful lives. 
in Jesus' name. Amen.